Good morning to you. Great to see every one of you here today. I invite you to open your copy of God's Word to Psalm 20. And as Pastor Brian mentioned, don't forget that next week is First Sunday Fellowship. And bring something to eat so we can resume our fellowship lunches on the first Sunday of the month, hence First Sunday Fellowship. All right, Psalm 20, we uh, continue our uh, look at Psalms 13 through 24 with uh, Psalm 20 this morning. I encourage you to open your Bible or turn however you can to follow along in the Word uh, with me as I read it. Let's listen to the Word of God this morning. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt offerings. May he grant your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation in the name of our God. Set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And this is God's inerrant and authoritative word. May he um, add his blessing to what we've read. And let's pray for his help as we look into uh, Psalm 20 this morning. Uh, Do, Father, please give us your grace, enabling grace, uh, to see and hear your word today to us. May it be that very thing. May we hear you speaking through the text. Uh, Jesus, quicken us with your spirit. Open ears and open eyes to see and hear. Strengthen me, Lord, to preach and proclaim. We cast ourselves on your mercy to do this very thing among us. And ask that you would do it now, Christ Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. Some of the earliest examples of uh, chariots in the ancient world belong to the Hittites and the Egyptians, which looked something like uh, this one here before you. Uh, As far back as Genesis chapter 41, uh, we read about Joseph riding in Pharaoh's second chariot, which is a position of great honor. You recall that Joseph was promoted from prison to prime minister, basically. Um, It was of very light construction, generally speaking. Uh, Wood and leather were used throughout. The fittings were made of uh, some kind of metal, typically uh, bronze or iron. It was open at the back, as you see this one is. Uh, It had attachments for shields and containers for various weapons on the sides. Here's his uh, quiver of arrows. And they were designed to fulfill the function you see right here. Essentially, it's a a mobile firing platform. Uh, The bowman shoots his arrows while someone else uh, drives, charges into the enemy's formations. And as you look at this, it might seem a little flimsy to you. And indeed, if you saw... Uh, real uh, photographs of the frame of a chariot, you would think very much they look like nothing. 
just a few uh, sticks tied together and, uh, you know, something to go over the horse's backs. Uh, as flimsy as it might seem, this represents the leading edge of military technology in its day. Uh, and you can imagine how these would have appeared to the army of Israel. First Samuel 13 tells us that the Philistines came out to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers and foot soldiers like the sand on the seashore. So I just ask you to imagine for a minute what the rumble of that would have sounded like, the horse's hooves, 3,000 chariots pounding their way toward you with the cloud of dust from tramping feet and, and uh, from the horses like you see here. And it would have been terrifying physically and especially psychologically to, to watch that cloud of dust slowly work its way toward you. But the Lord repeatedly warns His people that chariots are a vain hope. Uh, the word of God warned Israel's kings not to stockpile chariots uh, and horses, and especially not to go down to Egypt to get them, which is exactly what Solomon did. He gathered 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. But throughout the word, we read warnings like these. From Psalm 33, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. And Isaiah 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. Scripture warns that you're, if you're trusting in chariots, your trust is misplaced. The Lord says you're relying on the wrong thing. So my question for us today is, what's your chariot look like? I'm not talking about the chariot you have parked in the driveway, although some think of it like that. I know you're not relying on a chariot like this, but chariots can take many different shapes. Chariots might not even, you might not even be able to touch them. They could be intangible things. It's that thing you rely on in the day of trouble to get you through. Chariots can be things like jobs and careers. Chariots can be financial like the house you live in, the possessions you own, just, just your lifestyle, the ability to go out and buy anything that you want. A savings account, a retirement account, your little nest egg you have tucked away. I think a chariot can even be a person, a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a, a fiancé, a spouse, a parent, a child. What does your soul rely on, depend on? rest on in the day of trouble? What do you put your hope in, your confidence in, in the day of distress? What, what should we trust in on the day of trouble? We see the answer to that question very clearly 
in Psalm 20, it has three parts to it. And as we look at these three parts of Psalm 20, they're on the back of your bulletin, you'll see the answer develop before our eyes. And we want to begin with the first part, of course, and, and here we see the prayer of God's people. Uh, the people of God ask the Lord intercede for their king uh, and to give him success in battle. And as we read this prayer in verses uh, 1 through 5, we'll notice six characteristics of their prayer. Uh, first, it's a, it's a prayer offered in the day of trouble. Uh, notice uh, verse 7. Uh, verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses. Um, the nation is facing an opposing army uh, who are coming against them. And so verse 1, they begin, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. Uh, a, a day of distress. Uh, trouble or distress has the idea of, of confinement. Uh, uh, a confining, narrow place. Uh, in, in our language, we would say they're in a tight spot or they're in a jam or even they're in a bind. And as I mentioned, uh, verse 7 indicates that there is, a, there is an enemy force coming against Israel that either has arrived or is soon to arrive uh, and, and to wage war against them. Uh, they've been confronted and battle awaits. They've been confronted by horses and chariots uh, similar to the one we were looking at a moment ago. Uh, this is an army that's uh, uh, possessing the, the leading edge of military might uh, and, and the ultimate expression of human power at that time. And, and with this burden of looming battle uh, uh, weighing on him, uh, David, the king, has gone to uh, the tabernacle. Recall that the temple's not been constructed yet. And that will be built by his son Solomon. And so they were still using the, temp the tabernacle, rather, the one they carried through the wilderness with them. And with this weight and burden of uh, an opposing army, with this great technology uh, looming in the near future, David has gone to the tabernacle to offer sacrifices and pray somewhere near the altar here. He's... Uh, uh, and his people are assembled near him. Uh, perhaps, uh, I don't think they would be here. They'd probably be outside in the courtyard. They've, they've assembled outside to intercede for their king. And their prayer is what we're listening to in verses 1 through 5. As David is inside offering his prayer and offering sacrifices there on the outside. And this is what they were praying for David. It's instructive for you and me, it teaches us that our first primary activity on the day of trouble is to seek the Lord's face through prayer and intercession. Our first instinct should be to cry out to Him, to lift up our voices and ask for help. And I, as I said, this is our primary um, primary uh, activity in the day of trouble. It was John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who put it this way, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. Uh, we must pray first. 
So this is what they're doing here. They're praying in the day of trouble. But then we see, and this might put you off a little bit because I've used that $10 word. Their prayer is grounded in theology. It's a good prayer. Uh, I, I hope you're not put off by that word and your eyes glaze over when you hear it. Theology is our friend. <laughs> it's a good thing. It's a great thing. It's essentially the study of who God is. And they pray based on who God has revealed himself to be. Look at verse 1 again. Uh, let's continue. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. We want to ask, what do they mean by the name of the God of Jacob? Are they talking about one of the Lord's names given in Scripture? Adonai, El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahweh, uh, or, or something else. It's something else. It's not a reference to one of those names. When the name of God or the name of the Lord is referred to like this, and it's referred to often in the Psalms, it refers to all that he has shown himself to be. It's a reference to his nature, his attributes, to all that Israel knew him to be to them. And one aspect of his nature in particular they refer to here, may the name, may all that God is, the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The God of Jacob, it's a, of course, draws our attention to Jacob and, and the vow. Perhaps you're not thinking this, but let's think about this, shall we? Uh, the vow Jacob made to the Lord in Genesis 35. It's kind of a flashback. It's a hyperlink back to a previous text. And Jacob made this vow uh, to the Lord in Genesis 35. He said this, uh, Then let us arise, go up to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has gone has been with me wherever I have gone. Very similar phrasing to what they've just prayed. Referring to the Lord as the God of Jacob was a way to recall that by nature, just as he did with Jacob, the Lord was someone who delivered his people. Uh, this is what my seminary prof said. The answer of the God of Jacob became proverbial for powerful divine intervention. And so calling him the God of Jacob was a way to remember that, that he delivered Jacob and that's what he usually does. He delivers his people in, in, in a way to ask. It's a way to ask him for the same kind of deliverance. Lord, as you delivered Jacob, please now deliver us in our day of trouble. This is what our God normally does for his people. He, he comes and he rescues us. He delivers us. He brings us salvation. And this is what David says elsewhere. Uh, Psalm 68, for example, our God is a God of salvation. And to God, the Lord, belong deliverances from death. And then the last two words of verse 1. Reveal the kind of deliverance they're praying for. It says in your text, if you have an ESV, may the name of the God of Jacob protects, protect you. Or you could more literally say, may the name of the God who delivered Jacob set you on high. 
I'm sure many of you, as you were raising children, you know, the stuff you didn't want your kids to get at, you, where did you put it? You put it on, up high. You put it up out of the way so they couldn't get their grimy mitts on it and break whatever it was that was important to you. And they're asking for something akin to this. There's, they're saying, may the Lord God set you out of reach from the armies that are trying to destroy you. May he set you on high. And, and this whole prayer, it's grounded in the nature of who God is and the way he's shown himself to Israel as a God who delivers May you, you delivering God, set our king out of reach of the enemy. Well, then they go on and they pray uh, for a third thing, a third characteristic is that they pray for God's intervention. And by this I mean his direct involvement. Uh, we see this in verse 2. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Uh, might sound rather bland to you, but the word help there in that first phrase, may he send you help, is, is defined as doing for someone what that person cannot do for himself or herself. And, and so they're not praying for the Lord. Would you come alongside David and lend him a hand? They're, they're asking the Lord, would you come down and intervene? Because if you don't, David will fail. There's a sense that because the, the enemy has such superior technology that, that unless the Lord directly intervenes, uh, they'll be wiped out, uh, defeated at least. They have a distinct advantage to the other army. And, and, and without God actively intervening, they're sure to lose. They, they are completely and desperately dependent on him. And boy, here we are again. It's just kind of uncanny how God's people wind up in situations like this, isn't it? If there's anything we could proverbial say, one thing that's always true of God's people is they always seem to have their backs against the wall, doesn't it? Some of you right now are feeling this very thing. Your back's against the wall. You're like Israel at the Red Sea. You've got an ocean in front of you. You've got chariots thundering down the hill behind you. God, what am I going to do? Again, his people outnumbered, outmatched. Why does God seem to let this happen again and again and again? And why is he letting it happen to you right now? It seems that he does this constantly or, or repeatedly or frequently to show his people just how powerful he is. He means for you to throw your hands up in the air. He means for you to be at the end of yourself because that's when you are totally reliant upon Him. And you're not looking 
for the savings account to bail you out again. You're looking for the God of heaven to directly intervene. And he wants to show you just how great he is and how mighty he is. So this is a prayer for his direct intervention without which their army will fail on the battlefield. Well, another characteristic, it's a prayer for a faithful believer. Um, the people of God ask him to remember David's devotion and how profoundly devoted he has been to the Lord. Verse 3, may he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Uh, the people mention two types of offerings in this verse. The first is the grain offering uh, in that first line. Uh, may he remember all your offerings. Leviticus, Leviticus 2 says that this included fine flour, oil, frankincense, and salt. And the high priest would take a, just a handful of this and would burn it on the altar. Uh, Levit Leviticus 2 too, says, And he shall take from the offering a handful of the fine flour and oil with all its frankincense, and the priest shall burn this as its memorial portion to the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. This is voluntary, and David, as he's doing this, probably right as they're praying this very prayer, uh, offering this on the altar inside the tabernacle, David's expressing his his devotion, his commitment to the Lord through this grain offering. And then in the second line, they mention the burnt sacrifice, which is a burnt offering. Uh, and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. This is described in Leviticus 1. Uh, it's when the worshiper offered an animal to the Lord, either a bull, a lamb, a goat, or if they were poor, they would offer a turtle dove or a pigeon. And the blood of this animal would serve as an atonement for the worshiper, a covering for his sin. Leviticus says, The worshiper shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And the purpose of this burnt offering, this blood atonement, it says, signifies propitiation for sin and complete surrender, devotion, and commitment to God. And so the Lord's people are asking uh, him to remember this and accept it. That that uh, that phrase, regard with favor, uh, literally is Lord treat it as fat, uh, treat it as the best um, thing that He can offer you. Uh, this atonement for sin. They're they're asking the Lord because David has surrendered himself to the Lord and has given himself to the Lord made evident by the sacrifices. As I said, probably two of them are being made as they pray. Uh, Lord, remember this and accept it as, as, as the fat portion and may it please you. They're praying, interceding for David because of his faithfulness as a follower of Yahweh. Then they ask for um, success in battle. Fifthly, the king's people that he would, they pray that he would succeed. This is in verse 4. May he grant you your heart's desire. And the next phrase tells us what that desire is and fulfill all your plans. Plans here is, uh, well, the words used in 1 Kings to refer to battle plans, strategy. Lord, fulfill the plan for battle of our king. 
the, the strategy he's laid out with his men. Lord, bring this to fruition. Make it succeed, Father. And then finally we see that it's a sacrifice, uh, a prayer offered in confidence. Um, this we see in verse 5. Verse 5, the tone's a little different. And notice what it says there. It says, may we shout for joy over your salvation. And then the banners of our God set up our, in the name of our God, set up our banners. It, the word may at the very beginning gives you the idea that it's just part of the prayer. But Hebrew scholars point out that verse 5, the verb tense is different. The verb tense shows that this action is, is, is viewed as a future and so it should probably say, may we shout for joy over your salvation. That's probably, that's what it says. It, it should probably say, we will sing for joy at your victory. They're, they're confident that their God, the God of Jacob, will grant David success. They're confident that he will fulfill his strategy. And when he does... Because that's the kind of God He is. They will give a shout, uh, it says. Shout for joy. This refers to a, a, a loud ringing cry, like a, a loud and shrill, vibrating, uh, vibrating shriek, which I will not demonstrate to you. Nor do I encourage you to incorporate that in our gathered worship. This is not a, a calm, Protestant, mm, yes, Lord. I mean, this was quite deafening. Uh, you can imagine the tabernacle on a day of victory. It was a noisy place to be around. They conclude with a summary that kind of wraps up what they've been praying for. We see this in uh, the very last phrase of verse 5. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. As David is inside, as he's praying there, probably at the horn of, an, of the altar, one of the corners of the altar, may God answer you uh, for the very thing you're praying for inside there. Uh, recall that he's uh, probably somewhere in this vicinity uh, at one of the corners, his offerings have been made, and uh, he is praying to the Lord and asking him for help on this day of trouble to face the chariots and horsemen that await him for battle. So this is a prayer offered in confidence, and, and this is the prayer of the people. As, as David is inside, they pray for their king, uh, and it has this six characteristics. It's offered on the day of trouble. It's grounded in good theology. It's a request for God to actively intervene. It's for their faithful king, a faithful believer, for success in battle. And then it's offered in confidence. But then, something changes. Something different takes place. And at this point, it's believed that David now emerges from the tabernacle, that he concludes his prayer near the altar and 
comes out of uh, the entrance to rejoin the congregation uh, that has been praying outside. And the reason they suggest that, because in the second part of our psalm, someone else begins to speak. And it's not a group of people, it's an individual. And some think it's a priest who comes out with his answer. Others think it's David himself, which is why I tend to think, because down in verse 7, he says, we trust in the name of the Lord our God, identifying himself with the nation. I think David has now come out, and he begins to speak, and we hear his perspective in these next three verses. He's emerged to, to give the answer. Uh, that he has heard from the Lord. Uh, and this perspective that he, um, that he gives has four aspects. It's his perspective on the, on the battle that awaits him. Um, four aspects that I want you to see here. He emerges, first of all, confident of deliverance. Uh, and notice verse 6. Listen to the tone. And listen to his words. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. The verb tenses are very important. And I know you could care less about verb tenses, but they really are significant. Now I know that describes completed action. It's as though he's already experienced the deliverance he's been praying for. And he goes on, the Lord saves his anointed. That too, uh, the tense is is completed action. And the battle hasn't even taken place. And so it could say, now I know that the Lord has saved his anointed, referring to himself. Every king could be referred to as the anointed. Of course, Christ, in a special sense, was his anointed. But every king could have been called the anointed one. How can David say this? How can he come out? I mean, is he putting on bravado for the people? Is he putting on a good face? I mean, how can he talk about victory like this? Or or is he just being overconfident, full of himself? Could it be something else? And I would suggest certainly it's something else. Now, if you've read the Psalms much, you've seen this kind of flip happen in the Psalms. This change in tone, it usually occurs toward the end of the Psalm, but, but if you've read Psalms, you've seen it. And, and it's referred to uh, as, tech, the technical term is, the oracle of salvation, which essentially means that the one praying has gotten a word from a prophet or gotten a word from a priest uh, that his prayer has been answered or, or something has changed in his circumstances or they have a growing inner conviction that God has heard and will answer them. David has experienced something along these lines. Perhaps the priest inside the tabernacle communicated to him that the Lord had heard and would answer. And and so he emerges almost bursting with confidence in the Lord's deliverance. And so this is the first thing we see in his perspective. He is confident. But he goes on uh, to describe the manner in which they'll be delivered, or or how the Lord will deliver them. Look in the middle of verse 6. It says, He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. It's not 
merely that the Lord would deliver him. Um, again, this is not um, uh, uh, North American Protestant, you know, response. Mm, I'm confident that the Lord has heard our prayer, brothers. And I mean, he, he, he's expecting triumphant deliverance. This phrase he uses with the saving might of his right hand uh, refers to an overwhelming display of power. And let's remember that's what he needs. If God doesn't act and defeat this army, their history. And furthermore, he refers to the Lord here. He will answer him from his holy heaven. The God seated and ruled in all creation. That God, he will deliver with an overwhelming display of his might. David's not going to just squeak by. He doesn't have to eke out a victory on the battlefield. He doesn't have to give 110%. The Lord was going to deliver him with great force. David would soundly defeat his enemy. And the Lord would deliver him in a way that only he could. And the Lord would make it obvious, as only he can, that deliverance came from him. We see... Here in David's perspective, the manner in which he'll be delivered triumphantly, overwhelmingly. And then third, we come to perhaps uh, one of the most important aspects of his perspective. And that's the reason for deliverance. He comes out and explains why the Lord would deliver Israel from this threatening enemy. Please notice verse 7 in your Bible. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. And again, call to mind that those are, these were the leading edge of military power. Daunting, intimidating weapons. It's said that in Egypt they thought so much of Pharaoh's chariot that his chariot was considered a divine being. And the Egyptians would sing praises to the various parts of his chariot. wonder what that sounded like. We'll expect a chorus to the M1 Abrams tank next week, man. That's what it would be like. But remember the Lord's warning about those who rely on chariots. Woe to those who who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And then in sharp contrast to the enemy relying on its chariots is David and God's people as verse 7 continues. Look at what it says in the second half. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Note the object of their trust. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
Same phrase we saw in verse 1, the name of the God of Jacob. We trust in all that God has revealed himself to be. We trust in the, the whole of his attributes, his things like his omnipotence and his sovereignty and his steadfast love and his compassion and, and all the other things. That's the object of their faith. The, in the faith of Israel, they trust in the Lord and, and who he's demonstrated himself to be. But then I want you to see not only the object of their trust, look at the nature. Uh, this is in 7 as well. Uh, we trust in the name. And this Hebrew term actually means to remember, to keep in mind. And the grammar of this word uh, gives it the meaning to keep reminding yourself, to hold something in your memory. And so we take this verb and we, we couple it with the object of their faith. And the sense of this sentence is that to continually keep God in mind. To continually remind yourself of how the Lord has revealed himself. To continue reflecting and relying on his omnipotence and his sovereignty and his steadfast love and his compassion. Oh, no, no, David says, we are marching in the battle with our trust in human power. We're marching in the battle with God in mind. Remember who he, remembering who he is, what he's like, and what he's promised to do for his people. This is why he'll deliver us. Our hope is in him and not in horses and chariots. You remember how successful the horses and chariots were at the Red Sea crossing, of course. I'm being facetious. I hope you knew that. They did poorly. Dr. Steve Lawson offers this comment. Only the Lord can lead his people into victory. And this he grants when prayer is offered to him, expressing total reliance on him. And God's word affirms this in, in several places. But for example, in Psalm 33, David says this, uh, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. You see that? On those whose hope is in his steadfast love, on those who hope in, in how he's revealed himself to be to us. And then from the book of Lamentations, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Again, that phrase, the one who waits for Him and seeks Him. So I want you to think about your chariot that you go to, that you rely on in the day of trouble. Instead of relying on your chariot in the day of trouble, consider doing what these verses call us to do and, and to wait on the Lord and to hope in His steadfast love and to rest in all He's revealed Himself to be to us 
and to rely on what he has promised to do for his people. How do we stop relying on our chariots and do what this verb describes, set our minds on him and constantly bring to mind the things he's done? I think one way that we can do this is by remembering how God has powerfully delivered you in the past. And what I'm referring to is answered prayer. Well, if I told you how Christy and I made it from Seneca, South Carolina to Dallas, Texas after we got married, you'd believe in God right then. (laughs) Oh, my word. As I think of it, I still sometimes shudder and know that he's the one who carried us. And you have some. I hope you do. And I hope you've written down. And I hope either you and your spouse or you and your kids call back to mind and say, well, remember when God did this for us? Remember how desperate we were and clueless and we didn't know what to do and and then this happened and this check showed up in the mailbox or this person showed up at my door or whatever happened to reflect that God had delivered you. Do you you have one of those that you can think about? Listen to David's. This is from uh, right before he fought Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. He's thinking back on a previous deliverance. Uh, And he's speaking to King Saul who doesn't think that David should face Goliath. And David says, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has delivered, he has defied the armies of the living God. So, Saul, if the Lord delivered me when I was wrestling a bear, what? Wrestling a bear? Really? Wrestling a lion? I have never heard any of you talk about doing either of those things. <laughs> if the Lord delivered me when I was wrestling a bear, he can surely deliver me from this uncircumcised Philistine. Look, this guy is downhill compared to where I've been. In my office, I have a can of spaghetti sauce, and it is a reminder to me of a very important event that took place when I was a youth pastor in College Station, Texas. We would um, take a trip every year to Houston. It was an hour and a half away to see, uh, to go to a youth conference, hear this youth speaker who was really, really good, and we would stay overnight in a hotel and, and go back on Saturday, and so we would have a fundraiser to raise money to defer our, our hotel costs. And uh, boy, we usually had a spaghetti dinner and we auctioned off our students to do uh, work for people. 
and uh, they would earn money for our trip by doing odd jobs. And, and one year in particular, uh, uh, we were taking more kids than we ever had. And I think we rented an extra 15 passenger van, something that we were trying to raise twice as much as we had in the past. And uh, wow, I was nervous. I mean, if we didn't have the money, you know, I mean, the bottom line is what it is, right? You know, it's, and uh, so I was really concerned. We had our dinner and we had our auction and uh, we raised twice what I thought we would. And I remember shortly thereafter reading a book from Jeremiah. Ah, sovereign Lord, you created the heaven and earth with your great power and outstretched arm. Is anything too difficult for you? Boy, that, that verse pierced me. You know, here I am. I, I hung the stars and I created heaven and earth with my words. And you think I can't handle a spaghetti dinner? And, wow, I was very chagrined and cowed. Whew. Yes, I get it. We remember these things, how God has so powerfully delivered us in the past so we can look at this new day of trouble, remembering what He has been like to us, remembering how He's revealed Himself, and remembering, remembering how he's fulfilled his promises to us. Well, that's one way we, we get this in mind. Another way we keep the Lord's attributes in mind and who he is in mind is by memorizing his word and reminding of ourselves of these verses over and over. Like Psalm 91.2 He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Anybody doing fighter verses at the current time? Oh, that's not good. We're learning Psalm 91 in this year's this section of fighter verses uh, from Desiring God. Verses like Psalm 34.10, The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And then, then there's our go-to, my go-to, and a verse that John Piper said he had referred to, I forget how many times, but he kept referring to it like 500 times. He's had this verse in his mind. More now, I'm sure. Isaiah 41.10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I mean, that phrase is supposed to mean something. Be not dismayed. Don't hang your hands limp. Don't let your shoulders slump. I am your God. Why should you have slumped shoulders when I am your God? Do you remember who I am? I mean... I'm not some false deity like Loki, who, I love the Hulk's comment, puny God. 
or whatever he said. Is that what he said? <laughs> Best line in the movie, isn't it? Puny God. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. And you seriously do have to put those in your brain and bring them up. And when you're laying there in bed at night and uh, have that day of trouble circling the wagons and you need to bring these up and, and, and quote your verses to yourself and let the peace of God's Word soothe you and, and calm you down and re remind you of what your God has revealed Himself to be. Well, this is, I think, the most important part of the psalm, the reason for His deliverance. They, they have their minds fixed. They remember for themselves. They keep bringing it up to mind on who the Lord is and how He's revealed Himself in their history and the things He's promised to do for them. And you're probably wondering what the outcome of those two different mindsets are, chariots or the Lord. And that's what we see in this uh, fourth thing in his perspective is the results of, of deliverance. And we find these in verse 8. Uh, David describes the results of those two contrasting hopes. Verse 8 says, they collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Those who rely on human power, they will fail. A chariot is a vain hope. And they will be disappointed in those things. And haven't you found disappointment in your chariot? And how it didn't do what you were hoping it would do? How, how can it? It's not God. They collapse and fall. And again, he's making this, stating this as though it's already happened. We, on the other hand, we who have the Lord constantly fixed in our mind and are mulling over who He is, and we who focus on His greatness and His faithfulness and His power, it says we rise and stand upright on the day of trouble we're left standing, and they're not, because their chariots failed, but our God won't. Those who hope in Him will not be put to shame, as David says in another place, Psalm 34. And we, we see the result of this deliverance. The, those who hope in the Lord and have this mindset of meditating on on who God has revealed Himself to be, and, and think much more now of who He's revealed Himself to be in Christ. How He's revealed Himself to us through Christ. Well, this is the perspective of the King. He comes out of the tabernacle, uh, I believe at this point, confident of deliverance, assured that the Lord will give him victory. The manner of deliverance through an overwhelming display of power the, the reason, because their minds are set and fixed and uh, meditating on who God is and, 
what he's done and then the result is that they're left standing after the battle is over. There's one more part, and this one is, is brief. It's kind of just the summary statement of the people. Um, remember, they've, they've pre been praying outside the tabernacle uh, for this looming battle. And then David came out and shared his perspective as he emerged from praying there at the altar. And the scenario is proposed is that David now leaves and joins his army and they go to face the enemy. But, but it's suggested that in verse 9, the people remain and they return to prayer. And this is why it's called the perseverance of the people. Uh, they, they, again, pray for David as he goes to battle. Verse 9 says, O Lord, save the king. May he, may the Lord, that is, answer us when we call. Uh, it's pretty much a, a summary of the things they've been praying in 1 through 5 above, uh, but they renew their request for the Lord to deliver David, and they ask him to answer favorably and kindly. They persevere in prayer. They don't drop it. They, they return to it to pray for their king. So, friend, what's your chariot? What's your soul rest on in the day of trouble? What do you put your hope in on the day of distress? Scripture warns that if our trust in us is in a chariot, whatever it looks like, our trust is misplaced. And we're relying on the wrong thing. Some trust in chariots. Some trust in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We trust in God and who He has revealed Himself to be in His Word. All of His glorious perfections. His power, His steadfast love, His faithfulness. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. We also trust in the promises He's made to His people. This is our chariot. Let's pray as we conclude. We admit our frailty to do this, our struggle to do this, our minds as... Uh, always seem to gravitate towards a false hope, Heavenly Father. And we confess that we have not always kept our gaze fixed on Christ or your glorious attributes, how you revealed yourself to us in the Word and in our lives previously. And we need your help to do this. We need to hide your Word in our hearts. Uh, Savior, do this by your good Spirit. I pray especially today for the person who's got their back against the wall that you would lift up their chin and you would open their eyes so they can see just the kind of God you are. You're not a puny God. You're, a God of, uh, you're the God of Jacob. You're the God who, who normally delivers his people from the day of trouble. God, do this for those in the room especially struggling like that. 
and strengthen them with your grace. In Christ Jesus, we ask that you would do all this through your Spirit who indwells us. Amen.